Hello and welcome to Borderlines. I'm Stephen Murins. On today's episode, I am joined by Marina Sadai of Sadai Law to discuss different myths about Canada's immigration system. Marina is an immigration lawyer and the past national chair of the Canadian Bar Association Immigration Section, a role that she served in from 2018 to 2019. She's also a past provincial chair of the CBABC Immigration Law Section. Uh, Marina can be found on Twitter at at Marina Sedai, M-A-R-I-N-A-S-E-D-A-I. Deanna is off today. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review on iTunes. I can also be reached at steven.murins at larley.com, S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, this might be the quintessential immigration myth that everybody involved in immigration has heard for, I think it's been around 20 years. And that is refugees get more financial help than Canadian pensioners. I think we've all had aunties and uncles try to circulate this on, a, on email. Um, so it's a lie that won't die. And this, you know, the answer is no, Canada does not take better care of its refugees and pensioners. Uh, now, I, I want to preface what I'm going to say by acknowledging I'm not an immigrant, a rather refugee lawyer. Uh, but, um, but I think I have enough information here to dispel this one. So when refugees arrive, the Canadian government doesn't allow them to work immediately. If they don't have their own funds, and not all refugees are poor, some do have their own funds, but if they don't, then some of them are entitled to provincial social assistance. So it goes with whatever the province or territory is that uh, is offering that they're in. So typically something like 800 bucks a month, which is 10 grand a year. Uh, this is not living high off the taxpayer's dime. Uh, you know, low income for one person is $27,000 a year to give it a bit of measure. Um, now, once the refugee claim goes to the RPD, the Refugee Protection Division, I understand at that point, the individual can get a work permit and they're off to have their own income. Uh, so I said earlier, some refugees, because those who are sponsored have sponsors and they're going to take care of their basic needs. So they're not going to normally be receiving any social assistance. Uh, now, if we want to compare that, to pensioners, you know, worst case scenario, a pensioner who has no savings, no employment related pension, no other income, uh, isn't entitled to any other kind of support. Um, so they're in the lowest income bracket. They get at least 1300 a month. So that's considerably more. It's not great. And so I'm definitely not saying that there isn't, you know, senior poverty in Canada, but I want to give it a little bit more measure before we go on to the next myth. Uh, and that is that uh, there's a Carleton University um, research paper that pointed out that Canada's elderly rate, and this was about six, seven years ago, uh, was less than one third that of the US and one sixth that of Australia. So it's an important issue, but 
know that myth that refugees get more money, get better care um, through social assistance than seniors, myth busted. So Jason Kenney and the old conservative government, when they terminated the investor program, that really brought this to the fore because they used to trumpet that, what was it, the average refugee was earning or paying more income tax than the average investor. Yes, the investor class was, you know, the day that uh, they got rid of that, I, I celebrated. Um, it uh, was not in Canada's interest. You know, this, this whole, I don't know where this myth came from. Um, I think, you know, maybe it was someone's original mistake, or maybe there was malice. Uh, but it is just so blatantly wrong uh, that I cringe when I see it now. But the problem is that, you know, part of the reason these myths continue on is because those of us in the know, and I'm sure most of your audience knows this is a myth. It's not even a question. It's almost to the point of being a ridiculous statement. But, you know, there's Brandlini's Law, uh, so uh, also known as the... Uh, if I can say it on your podcast, bullshit asymmetry principle. I've never uh, heard of this. What's this principle? Oh, oh the bullshit asymmetry principle. Uh, this, uh, the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude larger than to produce it. So, bullshit asymmetry. Yeah. So, you know, I you like hear it. someone make, make a statement like this, you, we immediately know it's not true, but to refute it, we need time to go look up the stats, to organize uh, a proper argument, et cetera. And when it's one's uncle at the high holiday table, we, uh, we're probably just going to let it go. And this myth then continues. I like it. I like it. I've never heard that term, but I'm going to definitely use it. The bullshit asymmetry principle. Yeah. What was the other word you used? The more scientifically or the, I think you called it something else too. Um, Brandolini's Law. Brandolini's Law. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have a look at that. <laughs> um, so myth, uh, myth number two. Yeah, myth number two is another refugee issue. And it's this. Canada brings in a lot of refugees. Now, some people say this with a swell of pride and others say it as a criticism. But either way, it's not exactly a myth but it's, it's based on um, stats that maybe aren't quite on or don't represent the full picture. So I was looking at a the report to Parliament 2019. I think, okay, I saw that these, this was mentioned in there. And it cited a UNHCR document uh, that indicated about 92, 93,000 refugees were settled to a number of Western countries. And amongst those countries, it is true, Canada took the largest number. And so proportionally, probably even did a better job. Uh, and now Canada, what brought in 28,000, US 23,000, Australia 13,000, UK and France a little less than 6,000. So in that small box, that, that subset of refugees, yes, we did a great job. But hold on, <laughs> you know, 93,000 was not settling all of the refugees. Uh, that is less than 1%, or was, I should say, less than 1% of the 20 million refugees 
under UNHCR's mandate. So there were more beyond that. And in that same UNHCR document, it cites that there are about there were about 71 million displaced persons around the world. So when we start comparing the number of refugees that Canada took while we're patting ourselves on the back and we do get to do that to an extent, we also maybe should be a bit humble when we look at the numbers around the globe. Yeah. What are your thoughts on um, kind of related to that, this the super niche ref blending of refugee and economic immigration programs that the government's recently started, where they're selecting refugees, it seems, based also on their economic potential. And do you think that that just perpetuates its own myth that refugees don't contribute economically? Uh, no, I, I actually don't. Um, I see, well, the greatest advantage, I remember being in a meeting in Ottawa when it was being discussed, it was being introduced. There's great pride and excitement in the department for what they were doing. And I can see why, uh, that by taking as many skilled workers as they can, pulling them from the refugee stream, they have more space for refugees ultimately. You know, some are coming in through the economic classes. So when people are in need and, um, you know, we can offer them something and they can offer us something. I don't have a huge quarrel with that. And, you know, additionally, for those who aren't selected, I mean, it's a very small program, uh, very narrow. So just because they're not selected through that program doesn't necessarily mean that they yeah. aren't skilled and aren't going to have much to offer or that their kids and their grandkids will. Yeah. Okay. Myth three. I like this. Uh... Moving yeah. away from refugees into general immigration. Yeah, it um, this is relates to the family class and the, the myth that there are there are indeed it's no myth two processing streams for sponsored spouses and partners. The as it's known inside of Canada or the spouse or common law partner in Canada class that's a bit of a mouthful, and the outside of Canada stream. Now. The problem here is that just because of the names and also great thanks to the IRCC call center, the agents for, oh gosh, more than a decade, um, they were telling people, oh, you're, you want to be sponsored by your spouse or partner, you're physically in Canada, then you can only apply in the inside of Canada class, which is absolutely wrong. Uh, now, Thankfully, that's not so much of a problem with the call center anymore, uh, because some very smart person, when they revise the checklists for the family class, I'm going to give somebody in Mississauga credit for that, but maybe it was someone out of Ottawa, don't know. Uh, they made very clear on the checklist, are you in Canada and wishing to apply in the outside of Canada class? So that's really helped educate everyone. But if it's a myth that persists. I mean, it still gets spread around on the internet. People get most of their legal information from, you know, the comments section on many web pages. So it still lies there. And there are problems with that. Uh, now, the two big problems that I see is that if someone does the inside of Canada class, they have their Canadian sponsor has no right of appeal. And that can be a serious issue in some cases. Uh, now, both classes have 
Judicial review is a potential remedy, but that's a maybe and a long, hard road. Appeals are far more desirable. Um, just to sort of uh, put more detail on that for the audience, the appeal is heard by the Immigration Appeal Division. It's a hearing de novo, meaning that uh, the member, the tribunal member can hear new evidence and has fairly wide jurisdiction in uh, deciding the case. The other problem is that these are international people. They have work outside Canada. They might be wanting to go back to finish up education. Aging parents outside Canada, that's a big one. Mom or dad or grandma or grandpa gets sick. They go back to look after them. And then here's the problem that they are not, I mean, the inside of Canada class requires that the sponsored person be residing in Canada with their Canadian sponsor. If they're not, their application gets refused. The same application that has no appeal. But I don't know, did you find any other mischief with uh, that myth? Uh, well, there's also the work permit in the inside Canada mm. class, and there is no work permit in the outside Canada class. Out of curiosity, maybe like from your meetings with government, you might have a better answer than I do to the question, why are there these differences? Like why, if you apply inside Canada, do you not get an appeal, but you do get a work permit? Whereas if you apply outside Canada, you get an appeal, but no work permit. Yeah, so my understanding is that this came from a policy, a decision in Ottawa that I can only appreciate and admire. A lot of family members in Canada, they're trying to survive, they're trying to support and feed their families, they have no status. So this was um, this inside of Canada stream uh, was brought in to regularize their status because so many of them were out of status. And while that was being done to give them a, a work permit. Now, of course, as we know nowadays that if they're out of status, they're not going to get that work permit. Um, but- uh, They also didn't uh, want to give those people an appeal. Yes, uh, and I remember um, reading up on why that is, and I just don't quite recall at the moment. I, I think I want to say that it had something to do with the ability to remove people from Canada, uh, but it seems to me that there were other reasons as well that I'm not quite recalling at the moment. Yeah, no, it. Um, I find it weird that there hasn't, I mean, I guess they have other priorities and the pandemic now, but why it's at least been 15 years that there've been these differences that don't seem that rational. Yeah, I think one of the big things you mentioned the work permit. I, I don't understand if the individuals are in Canada and using the outside of Canada stream, give them a work permit too. Yeah. Um, why not? These families need to survive and we're telling them that we have a, a, an entire class for them to become permanent residents. Then why in the meantime, deny them and their Canadian loved ones uh, an income, a way, a means by which to survive? Yeah. It, 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 it doesn't help anyone. Yeah, I saw results also through an access to information class that, or an access to information act request that the overall approval for spousal sponsorship, common loss partnership is somewhere between 80 to 85%, but the approval for dual intent visitor visas is around 50 to 55%. Yeah. 
which suggests that they could approve a lot more of those applications and uh, that they're just being too strict in assessing these dual, in, dual intent applications. I am shocked that it, it, the stats uh, reveal it's that high <laughs> because, uh, oh yes, it, it, it's been the kiss of death to have dual intent, uh, an outside of Canada application process or hoping to have an inside of Canada application be submitted after arrival and say, hey, I'm from a visa-required country, may I come? Uh, yet uh, I, I, I'm stunned and delighted that it's around half of them are being approved. Um, and, you know, and it's so different for people from visa-exempt countries. I mean, we have a steady stream coming in and there's some good case law saying, look, we have a stream for these people. If they have dual intent, let them in. Yeah. And officers tend to be very good about it at, at the border. They... they the CBSA, I find ha, uh, their their workforce has a good understanding of, of this issue. You know what? Why don't we, as you were, as you said that, I've been writing down also just myths that come to my head. And since you just said that, I'd like to introduce one of my own and maybe you can uh, say if you agree or disagree, but on the whole, I would much prefer a port of entry application where someone can interact with the CBSA officer than an online IRCC application. Um, and that on the whole, I know we all have our horror stories at the port of entry, but on the whole, I find that the ability to have that face-to-face -face interaction um, to be much preferable to the faceless bureaucracy of IRCC. Yes, I think in, in many cases, um, and of course we have to qualify it, but qualifying it doesn't mean that you're not right. Uh, there's a couple of concerns that I usually have. There are so many people who are anxious and terrified when they get to the border. That experience takes seemingly years off their life. And it's just a mundane interaction for the officer. Um, you know, and I had anecdotes I always want to be careful about, but um, I think this is a fair one to raise. Uh, I had one at the border the other day, poor innocent guy coming in. He was Canadian um, and uh, coming in and just had his vehicle taken apart and had to um, lift up his shirt, etc. And of course, all was well. There was nothing wrong. Um, but he, uh, the officer said, are you nervous? And he goes, of course I'm nervous. And she goes, well, people who have nothing to hide aren't nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was my reaction too. So I tried to reassure him that, you know, the, super, the superintendents, the chiefs, and I dare say most of the officers, the BSOs at the border, they don't think like that. But that stuff does sometimes happen. Yeah, there's definitely... The, uh, I think everyone has their, their horror stories. Um, yes. But I, uh, just because I think procedural fairness wise, that ability where, you know, in IRCC, if an application is missing something, you know, it's a insufficient evidence. These officers, you know, federal court would say these officers do not have an obligation to provide applicants with a running tally Whereas I feel like at CBSA, an officer would say, can you explain this? Um, right, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that 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 one-on-one interaction, for the most part, as long as uh, someone you know, <laughs> as long as a person can handle their anxiety, yeah, I, yeah. I agree with you that there's definite advantages. Okay, um, next one. If or are you going to read it, or who's been? Sure. Yeah. Sure. All right. The old myth: if you're including your if including your spouse or common law partner on your permanent resident application is inconvenient or unhelpful to your immigration process, then you can exclude them and later sponsor them. Yes. So this really, I find it uh, comes from a lot of non-lawyers who are giving advice, especially outside of Canada. Uh, and it's, it's terrible advice. It's absolutely wrong. Um, so, as we know, every immigration lawyer can rattle off 117.90 of the regulations. And that is, if you don't say someone is your family member on your permanent resident application, then forevermore, they're not. So if you later go to say, I look, I, I didn't include a family member, I want to sponsor them now, you have two problems. One, they're not a family member. Yeah. Two, uh, did you misrepresent on your application? Let's take a close look at that. Um, now, I have to mention in this context, of course, I'm sure your listeners are all saying, but but the, the, print, the uh, policy, the policy. And yes, there is a public policy uh, that uh, Minister Hussein announced in 2019, and it's going until going for another six weeks or so to September 9th, 2021. Uh, and it is that if someone left off their family member on a refugee or family class application, that they're going to be exempt from their family member can still be a family member at who they can sponsor. Now, I'm filled with optimism and hope that this will not only be an extended public policy, but it'll be an expanded one, and it might even make it permanently into our regs. Uh, but let's see if I am uh, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses or not. What yeah. do you think? Um, I have no idea if they'll make it permanent or not. Kind of fits into the general. One of the surprises has been, you know, towards what might be the end of the second, like, term of the liberal government, that there hasn't really been an immigration bill yet to amend the ERPA, like a specific immigration act that they have uh, introduced. On this point of um, 11790 and the exclusion of people who aren't declared, I feel like there's also a myth that needs to be raised for people in the bureaucracy, which is that anyone has a clue outside of Canada and even within Canada, that most people have a clue what a common law relationship is. Mm. And the amount of cases of, well, first of all, like the assumption that people would know one year versus two years or what a conjugal relationship is, or if you live together for one year with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that you would know that you're a common law partner, um, especially in jurisdictions that aren't common law, like most of the world, um, I think is something that I wish that was both visa officers and the federal court was more appreciative of, which is that most people aren't, just don't know what that term means. And I feel like even in the forms, like there's this weird, there's this question in the forms 
of the relationship history that's like, did you have a formal ceremony to enter into, to celebrate you becoming a common law couple? And I always want to write like, and it says, provide an explanation if not. And I always want to write, no one throws a party to celebrate that they've been living together for a year. Like that's not a thing. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> and it's just this, um, and it's really like, I mean, we laugh about it, but like, it's also painful when you see people who are receiving letters that are like, you either committed misrepresentation, as you said, or you might never be allowed to sponsor this person because you didn't declare them and didn't declare that you were in a common law relationship. And it's like, I had no idea that was a thing. Um, and it's one yeah. of the like, most it sets aspects of the system for me. Very much, it sets people up. Uh, and you know, people generally, uh, you know, they want to be honest, they want to get it right, and they just don't know. They, they don't understand that they really need to have that move-in date crystallized in their evidence. They don't understand that, okay, yes, they, they were always at one home, but one of the partners had another home, another rental place yeah. that they occasionally went back to. Um, there, there's also that question, when did you, how is it worded? When did you enter the common law relationship? And it takes some figuring out to think, do you mean the cohabitation start date or the one year anniversary of the cohabitation start date? Uh, and over time I've learned that uh, it's the latter. But if I had to scratch my head over that, of course the public is going to. Yeah, it's, it's mind blowing to me. Yeah, no, it's 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 a difficult thing, and then the whole conjugal partnership—that's that could be a whole podcast uh, on its own. <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to—they took our jobs. South Park reference. Yeah, well, thinking about taking jobs—that'll nice segue into uh, the next. Not a myth, but you know, a misconception, and that is foreigners steal our jobs. Canadians are being paid less. And so I say this isn't a myth. Uh, I just think maybe it's more like a, a hasty generalization because it's partly true, partly false, and quite complex. The, and every fix that we seem to come across has unintended consequences. So downward pressure. You know, that yes, there's downward pressure from those who are willing to commit fraud and misrepresentation. Uh, in my view, it's not such a small group. But then again, I do live in Surrey, BC. <laughs> so um, uh, I can touch more on that later. But uh, it's, you know, it's a city that's no stranger to selling jobs where the employer takes some of the money, the non-lawyer who's organizing this takes some of the money, and the foreign national doesn't actually work there, it doesn't work there for the full um, hourly rate and pays the organizer of this and the employer back in part or whole the wages. Um, we just can't seem to shake that. So that kind, you know, until Canada is able to really uh, minimize that and do something about that kind of fraud, it, it, I, I think, you know, I would love to see some research on how much this affects the, the labor market and wages. So, okay, to some extent, it might be true in that regard. 
Um, but to really understand this question, and you know, we could go on. I could go on on this question for an hour, uh, but to try to just very quickly um, uh, give the structure for the audience, we need to look at how foreign nationals come in. And so there's the temporary foreign worker program where the Canadian employer needs to advertise and try to find a Canadian. And there is the international mobility program where generally they don't need to do that. Uh, so the first one is all LMIA based, labor market impact assessment based, and the other one is not. Uh, and so in the temporary foreign worker program, you know, every, everyone has to be paid a competitive wage, the median wage, sometimes more than the median wage. So that really puts a halt on downward pressure to some extent. And, you know, the other thing I think we need to I hear people are always surprised, employers, employees, doesn't matter who, when I tell them what the uh, low wage cutoff is. Uh, <laughs> I see you laughing, but, uh, you know, it, it's the median wage in the province or territory. So in BC, that's 25 bucks an hour. Um, PEI is 20, Nunavut is 34. So we need to sort of be careful what low wage means because I think most would not consider that a low wage insofar as the experience of having a low wage job. Um, one can have, there are a few uh, jobs under the foreign worker program that are really low paid, close to minimum wage or at minimum wage. Not a lot of them though. So I don't see the foreign worker program as putting downward pressure on wages generally. Now we can take a look at the, all the other work permits that are not LMIA based, the International Mobility Program. So those are generally NOC 0AB. They're all mostly the skilled work with some open work permits as well. Uh, the low skilled, and so for, you know, the skilled workers, they're usually in a position, you know, executives, IT workers, professionals, where they're going to negotiate what they can, and they have a pretty good power position vis-a-vis -vis the employer. I'm not worried about them. The low-skilled NOCs, uh, NOC C and D, so we're looking at the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program and open work permits that maybe spouses and youth mobility programs offer. There I can see how this statement has likely truth to it. Um, there now, what, what's the alternative? You know, what happens if we pay people more for these positions? Twice as much, three times as much, whatever the case might be. Then what happens to the farmers competing to imports, competing with imports rather? What happens to food costs, food security for the 10% of our population that lives in poverty? What happens to Canada's economic recovery? And, and I, before uh, we get people really upset who are listening, I'm not saying that the wages shouldn't be higher. But all I'm saying by this is that we, this is complex. And when we have to be careful because when Ottawa is trying to fix one problem, it can well create another. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it's like, there's just so many unknowns in the equation, like on prevailing wage, you know, sometimes you look up a job 
I can't think of any off the top of my head right now, but where there's no data and you're sitting there, mm -hmm. thinking, what am I bringing in the first person in Canada to ever like work in this occupation? Um, and so I wonder just what the prevailing, sometimes I just wonder what the prevailing wage data is. And as, as you mentioned at the start, there's this question of like, the people who are paying for jobs, it's something because it's so underground and you also never really know if there's also money changing hands overseas. Um, it's hard to know the scale of the problem and we'll probably never know the scale of the problem. And so trying to calculate it, it's like how when they said back when um, marijuana was illegal, but it was also, I think, the second largest industry in British Columbia or something. And so you just look at everyone's declared income and all of our economic indicators and you wonder like, well, if our second biggest industry isn't in here, like how accurate really are all these stats? I kind of feel the same way when it comes to like, in some of these knocks, especially prevailing wage or like what the impact is where, like I have no idea how big, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm confident that in certain industries, it's really, really small where people are paying for jobs for LMIAs or post-grad or provincial nominee, like certain industries, um, you know, you never hear stories about it, tech. Um, other industries you hear rumblings about it, but the scale is, I have no idea. I don't know how anyone would ever actually like learn. The I have, I've had a suggestion for a few years now. The difficulty is that many people who have the facts and have the evidence don't have entirely clean heads. So they were either, they were either in on it and then it went south or they weren't in on it. They chose to believe when they were told, no, no, this is legal. It's perfectly okay for you to do this. Um, maybe there was some willful blindness there. Um, whatever the case, even if it was incredible naivety, um, they nevertheless don't have clean hands because they knew the structure of it and they went along with it and didn't inquire further. So for those people, they need to know that they can come forward just as we have in the criminal justice system, people who come forward, and even though their hands are not clean, um, can, can share their information with law enforcement. I think that's the only way to get at this. And it's, you know, do we delight in someone who is to some extent culpable in the situation, not having consequences visited on them? No. But I think that's the only way to gain access to this this fraud and to really bum the depths of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know if there's the political will for it, but I don't see any other uh, solution than some sort of an amnesty for people who come forward. Because yeah. um, I could see why, the, I could see the counter arguments to a general amnesty, uh, but I do think that rooting this out is, it's. It's probably like when the uh, conservatives shifted from immigration based on human capital to immigration based on jobs and kind of shifting it to the private sector. Um, you know, one of the unintended consequences was employers in the private sector figuring out a way to profit off this. Yeah. 
Uh, I, it's yeah, I don't know how rampant it is, but it's definitely there. Um, number six. Yeah, the whole out of status and documented immigrants don't pay taxes thing. Well, again, this is maybe there's some truth to it because when someone is out of status, they don't know what the information sharing is between departments. They get quite frightened and they hold back on communication with all federal and provincial departments. Um, of course, this is at their own peril and <laughs> incredibly unwise, but I, sure, that happens. I have to say, though, the large majority of my out-of-status uh, clients over the years who were coming to me because they wanted to regularize their status, they generally were paying their income tax. But it's a bigger question than income tax. Um, they, they might be paying property tax because they own something in Canada or they belong to a household that does. They are paying sales tax on their purchases just like everyone else. They're not using a lot of the services that the taxes uh, pay for. Uh, so while, yeah, it's not an ideal situation, saying that they don't pay taxes um, is really setting them up as someone who takes and takes from Canada, costs Canada and contributes nothing. And that's not true. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely not fair. But of course, better to be regularized and pay everything. Yeah, I've never met a person who said like, I would, you know, the reason I don't get a work permit is because I don't want to pay taxes. Mm. Like, there's also the fact that if they aren't paying income taxes, it's because if they did, they'd be deported. So it's like, you know, it's hardly their fault. Um, mm. Kind of similar is number seven. Yeah, um, immigrants go into clusters or uh, ghettos in cities and don't want to integrate. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think we have to look at where immigrants are and sure they are in generally, you know, MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, um, more broadly the provinces that they're in, Ontario, Quebec, BC and Alberta. And they're in these provinces and cities at a bit of a higher rate than Canadians, but not a whole lot. So they're doing the same thing that, you know, I did with my internal migration in Canada. I left a tiny, it's, I can't even call it a town, it's a village uh, on the prairies uh, and came out here where there's more economic opportunity, more social opportunity um, and a different, slightly different cultural setting. Uh, so I get that. Um, but the other thing we want to look at is, okay, so there are communities where people tend to move into because um, it's, there are familiar things there. There are familiar goods, there are familiar events. Uh, there might be more economic opportunity because there are communities who are willing to give them jobs and maybe some Canadians are initially when they don't have the, the Canadian education, the Canadian experience. Um, but these are not economically depressed areas for the most part. I mean, look at, you know, in BC, Richmond, definitely not economically depressed. Surrey, Surrey's doing just fine, it's thriving. So just because people cluster together doesn't uh, suggest something about, um, something negative about it socially 
and economically. And of course, you know, when, okay, when people first arrive, I understand just like my grandparents, they, they sat close to people in their linguistic group. That's fine. My parents didn't, I didn't. Uh, now, anecdotal stuff, but I think it's almost beyond an anecdote. It's fairly clear that the younger folks integrate, right? They're going to school, they're going to university, they're, they're living life just like any other Canadian. So I think that the, the, the sentiment behind this myth uh, is, is unfair. It's not like, um, you know, some areas in North America where there are, are spots where people are living and they're sort of trapped there and there's a whole, a whole breadth of problems. No, I don't see that. What do you think, Stephen? Have you? Um, I mean, there. I definitely would wouldn't say there's ghettos in the sense of that word. Are there geographic clusters that are based on race? I mean, yeah, like certain areas of Vancouver, you know, might have a higher, you know, ex-ethnic group, but is that? as you said, like second generation, third generation, does that continue? Probably not. Is it a problem? I don't see why it would be. Um, you know, do certain provinces have a hard time retaining immigrants? Yes, but as you said, that's also, they, what I understand, they have a hard time retaining people who were born there. So it's just like the nature of general migration. Yeah, and there are some programs already introduced or afoot to have new newcomers interested in smaller towns, smaller cities. Um, you know, I have no objection to that. If somebody can settle in, in a smaller place and revitalize it, terrific. Um, but I don't think it's to cure the ill of people getting trapped in a city somewhere and having negative social and economic outcomes. Um, they are going to integrate. Uh, I, yeah, I just don't see, I think this is something that people just say uh, when they don't have the facts. Yeah. Well, and it's always weird to hear someone like, when you're sitting at a cafe in downtown Vancouver and someone saying, oh, the problem is immigrants, they all just settled in the big cities. And like, well, why are you here? Well, <laughs> it's awesome here. here. Well, there you go. <laughs> I'm sure they feel the same way. Yeah, look at the glass house that uh, all the rest of us live in. Exactly. Um, okay, the next one. Uh, birth tourism, also known as anchor babies or passport babies. Um, this one particularly drives me a little bit uh, mad. Um, so it's this. The idea that the foreign national comes to Canada with the purpose of giving birth here so that the baby will automatically be a Canadian having been born on Canadian soil. And later on, hopefully parent or parents are able to gain permanent residence through baby who grows up into an adult who can sponsor them presumably. Uh, and then mom and dad ultimately become citizens. And so I think the stats are spectacular here. Uh, 0.1% of births in Canada fit this um, description. Now, having said that, things are a little bit different in Richmond, BC. Apparently, not long ago, let's see, I guess it was a couple of years ago. No, actually, as I look at my 
my stats here, it's more like four years ago, but I have no reason to believe it's changed except for the pandemic. Uh, and that is that it's sort of a, it, 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 is a, it is a bit of a business in Richmond. There are um, like birth houses, I don't know what they're calling them. 17% uh, of the births in Richmond as of four years ago were foreign born babies, presumably here um, for that purpose of being, uh, mothers are here for the purpose of giving birth. Um, but, you know, we have to take a look at it overall that, you know, is there really a need federally for to take this on when it really only works out to 0.1%? That's a few hundred births a year in Canada. Uh, I frankly am not worried about it also because we know what goes on with the parent and grandparent sponsorship uh, program, the class. It's, I mean, unless something drastically changes in coming years and decades, uh, it's not exactly uh, a path to count on. I mean, what, uh, you know, 20, 30,000 parents and grandparents typically in a year uh, can be sponsored. And it's been a lottery for a while now. We'll see what happens in the future. Yeah. Be a weighted lottery or something else. But I mean, that is one heck of a gamble if that's really what one is after, because the odds are not great. I think, um, and I say 20 or 30,000, how many would like to subscribe to this class? My understanding is it's about 10 times as many. So there's quite the throttle on having parents and immigrate, uh, grandparents immigrate. Yeah, and the, uh, the person, has, the permanent resident or Canadian citizen has to be living here to sponsor yeah. and then three years of income tax. Um, yeah, I was at uh, Lionsgate Hospital Emerge and I was struck by how when you walk in, there's a sign for what procedures cost if you're not, don't have MSP and like out of the four or five procedures, two related to births, I think it was like straightforward birth, complicated birth. Um, I actually, I mean, it's a whole separate podcast topic. I kind of lean more to getting rid of the birthright citizenship um, and changing the way that's done. But I would like to address as far as myths go, kind of the myth the other way, which is uh, that you hear, well, the Canadian government would never deport me. I have a Canadian child. Oh. <laughs> which is something you hear all the time. And uh -huh. it's uh, not true. Um, the Canadian government, uh, no, I not. regularly, but there definitely are like daily cases of uh, people who are permanent residents or more likely foreign nationals who um, have Canadian born children and who leave and the children accompany their parents and have to leave as well. Uh, and the other myth is, you know, any agency with a Canadian born child will result in a humanitarian and compassionate class approval, which is also not <laughs> so that's the, the myth that goes the other way on the whole anchor babies, passport baby thing. Right. So, yes, the, the best interests of the child uh, doesn't determine the outcome, but yeah. it's an issue to be given serious consideration by the officer. But um, yeah, I, you know, people are surprised when I tell them that effectively 
Canadian citizen children and babies are deported. And by that, I mean, no, the Canadian government is not deporting their citizens. Um, but when there's only one option for baby to go with mom or dad who's being deported, well, then effectively that's what's happening until they age, grow up and decide if they want to give Canada a go. Yeah, it's one of those like technicalities in the definition where Technically, we're not deporting you or deporting your mom, but of course, you'll be going with her. So, like, you know, our stats show that we don't uh, deport Canadians. Um, number nine, chain migration. Oh, yes. Yes. Once somebody immigrates, they bring over their whole extended family. Oh, gosh, I've, I've heard this one so many times. And that, you know, touches on what I was just mentioning. How? How are they <laughs> going to do that? Uh, you know, if they're going to gamble on the parent and grandparent sponsorship lottery. Well, good luck to them. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, brothers and sisters. Well, there's been no sibling sponsorship since, what, 2002? Uh, so uh, that that's, doesn't happen. Other relatives? There's some tiny possibility, but no, yeah, not uh, the program is called. Yeah. What the lonely Canadian? Did you say? Yeah, sir. yeah, yeah. Uh, people get so excited when they uh, read a little bit about it, but when they read more, their hopes are usually dashed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, this is not not true. And yes, in the economic classes, there's a tiny little boost for having a sibling in Canada. Um, but it's not of huge consequence. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this 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 myth is completely busted with uh, the the thinnest of uh, information. Yeah, I think that's a holdover from like or uh, people taking the U.S. system, which I understand. Yeah, well, I think you know people. Yeah, I mean the U.S. has uh, yeah had an issue politically with this, um, but. Um, I think it might also be that sometimes people are seeing visitors yeah. uh, and they're, they're misunderstanding that they're here temporarily to visit or to work. Yeah. Um, and that's only speculation on my part. Uh, number 10, immigrant number 10. learning English. Won't learn English. Uh, so this is very untrue. A tiny bit of truth to it, but largely untrue. Uh, so let me just scroll down to some of my stats. Uh, so 2016, about three quarters of people had a language other than English or French as their first language, compared to about 51% in, oh gosh, about 50 years ago in 71. But uh, don't get too alarmed because a lot of people are multilingual. Uh, so specifically, almost half of people born outside Canada do speak the, the other language at home most often, but more than half speak English or French at home. Uh, now this, the stats get a little more interesting to, to bust this myth. In 2016, English 83% uh, was selected by immigrants as their first official language, about 11% were French, and only 7% had neither of these two languages. Uh, so now one thing I want to know here to be fair uh, is that we're talking mostly about the principal applicant. 
not the dependents. Now, I think it's common knowledge that, you know, when kids come over, even if they don't have strong language skills, they get them pretty quick. Uh, the ones who might struggle a bit more are parents and grandparents or spouses. Uh, but still, I think, you know, based on these stats, if the principal applicant speaks French or English, um, I think the, no one can reasonably expect that the family is in fairly good stead. But also, again, anecdote, and I always want to be careful about anecdotes, but they do illustrate the point sometimes. Uh, my own family, first generation over, stayed within the Ukrainian Polish speaking community. And then their child, my father and myself, um, really spent our lives speaking almost exclusively English. Yeah. So, yeah, it's. Fixed. I would imagine the parent and grandparent program is where also you see the lack of English or French. It's also interesting just because there's a I don't know if it's bias is the right word or just the prism of viewing this, and it's that broader like if someone comes from another country to Canada, they're an immigrant or a foreign worker and must learn the language. Whereas if we go abroad to like live in Japan or China or Korea. Brazil for three or four years, we're an expat and we need to learn the local language. You know, it was like, there's that whole, do you need like how, if someone doesn't learn the language fully and fluently, how bad Mm -hmm. that, uh, I know there's a big debate or there was, I don't know how big it was a debate in Richmond about a couple restaurants having signs that weren't in English or French and I understand the concerns about that, but the general, like, you know, average person walking down the street as a temporary resident, foreign national, or permanent resident who doesn't have the fluent ability to read or write English, how big a deal is that? I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think the integrations, it's not instantaneous for some people, but it does come. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I think most Canadians, most, probably most, um, who complain about this, I would like to know what languages their immigrant ancestors ancestors spoke. Uh, (laughs) uh, They might have short memories. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, number 11, I don't know if I've ever heard this one. Have you actually come across it or... Oh, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. in the context of gangs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the one... The United Nations gang? Yeah, the, so the idea that um, immigrants bump up crime, and I think that that was really circulating uh, when there were a lot of cross-border asylum seekers into Canada that was uh, gaining some, some traction because there were a couple of newspaper headlines that, you know, somebody who came in had this criminal background. Um, But, you know, generally, no, this is not true. Um, Immigrants, in fact, push the crime rate down because we screen for this. Um, You know, they, they, we do security checks, we do uh, criminal checks now, and generally past behavior indicates future behavior. But we get a second kick at the can when it comes to screening, because once somebody has immigrated and they're a permanent resident, of course, they can become inadmissible if they commit a serious enough crime. 
uh, and you know the way we define this is pretty generous, so that captures a lot of the crimes. Uh, so they can lose their permanent resident status and uh, be removed from Canada. So you know we keep our Canadian citizen uh, criminals because we have the criminal justice system for that. But if someone's not a citizen, we might not keep them. So nevertheless, crime does occur. People do um, commit offenses. And so I, I can see it's a bit tough to get um, a handle on the stats because there's some question as to, and part of the measure is who's victimized by a crime. So if it's in a community, there's some um, assumptions made that maybe it's others in the community who committed the crime. Um, I don't know to what extent that's the case, uh, but uh, I, there was a one interesting stat I came across and that is immigrants are 30% less likely to be victims of violent crime in Canada. Um, again, there's a confounding variable there. Are they yeah. going to the police? But um, you know, I, I, I don't have an answer for that question. You often hear the argument of, uh, especially with people who are undocumented, that if they're willing to be in the country without status, does that correlate to a lack of respect for law, which will correlate to either tax evasion or a general, you know, disrespecting the law in other areas? I uh, don't know the data on it. I don't, just based on the people who I've met, think that's the case. That's all anecdote, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, most of the people, gosh, now I'm just uh, sort of scanning my memory, the large majority who have come to me out of status um, didn't have an additional uh, criminal history. They, they just fell out of status for a variety of reasons. And usually, most of the time, it was relationship. They, they were part of a family in Canada, and they don't want to be separated. Uh, so... Oh, and a few, you know, temporary people, foreign workers and, uh, and students, but, you know, they come because they're trying to fix it. Nobody has shown up at my office um, completely happy with their uh, state of no status and not caring if it's fixed or not. Everybody wants it fixed. <laughs> at least he comes to me. Yeah. You don't get those uh, sovereign citizens or people saying, I just don't want to be. <laughs> yeah, I've been looking at none of those. Number 12, you don't need a lawyer. If you follow the instructions, you should be able to fill out the forms and submit them yourself. Yes. So, you know, so that what you read there was, of course, verbatim what is on the IRCC website. Uh, and it, it, this bothers me to no end because Canadians know that they, when they have a need, a legal need, um, it could be divorce, uh, child, child uh, uh, support, uh, getting something to do with their taxes, uh, wills, maybe something to do with real estate. Maybe they work in something that has a union and that they benefit from the labor lawyers advising the union. I mean, Canadians generally, directly or indirectly, make use of lawyers for good reason. They don't know the law. It's complicated. Maybe they, they have anxiety around uh, paperwork. Maybe their lives doesn't give them the time. You know, they're too busy for this and they want some assistance primarily for that reason. There's so many reasons. 
And no one is telling people that, you know, you don't need a lawyer for your, you know, child support issue. You don't need a lawyer for your criminal issue, uh, et cetera. Uh, immigration is important to many people. And so if they want a lawyer, let them get it and don't be suggesting to them that, um, you know, they really should be able to do this themselves because it's not, it's, it's just not efficient. Uh, you know, if I were an officer, would I want to get a, an application from a lawyer's office that has a high, much higher likelihood of being answered properly, not having omissions, not having inadvertent misrepresentations, having sufficient evidence, being well-organized? Or do I want the opposite of that, which some, not all, self-represented applicants may well submit? Um, let people get advice, get good applications in. They're, you know, the stats are behind people having more success when they have a lawyer. Um, stop trying to uh, prevent people from getting help. And yeah. you know, that, that has spilled over technically now to uh, lawyers being excluded from the on some of the online portals for temp or for permanent residents rather. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people who struggle. I mean, are they a truck driver? Uh, you know, sitting down in front of a computer is not such an easy thing to do, especially if there's a deadline before them. A lot of people are good contributors to society, but they are not technologically savvy. Sending an email is a challenge for them. And you want them to do this without help? It, it, nobody benefits from that. Yeah, the mixed messaging from IRCC is frustrating. I'm always cautious on this because I typically tell people who ask, do they need a lawyer um, to just have a look at the website and decide on their own. And I'll never forget that I told one person who asked, do I need a lawyer? I said, well, yeah, have a look at the uh, have a look at the website. If you think you can do it, you know, like and if, if you think it's straightforward for you, then um, you know, then you probably don't, and it's up to you. And then when their application was refused, they called me furious saying, you said I didn't need a representative. And my application was refused and it's your fault because I should have hired you, but you thought I could do it on my own. I still generally above that sentiment, but definitely there are advantages to hiring someone to help with the application. It comes back to that common law thing that we were talking about earlier, like unless you have in a system that penalizes people for not knowing what the legal definition under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act of common law partner is uh, with a definition of common law that's different from anywhere else, you know, if the government is going to refuse people and the department will refuse people for not knowing these technical legal definitions, and send out refusal reasons that sometimes just cite statute without citing actual, like providing actual reasons. They're creating a weird scenario to then say, don't hire a representative. So, you know, yeah, the, the yeah. creative affairs, it's just weird. You know, yeah, I, I agree that there are some really sophisticated, savvy people out there who, you know, and they have straightforward cases. Um, who can take a, an application on by themselves if they're so willing. Um, having said that, I, I've always been, I know I get some, um, some people will disagree with me, but I, I really am a fan of limited scope retainer agreements. And that's where the individual is self-represented, 
but they get advice through the process and, and support um, from a lawyer. Uh, and I'm very clear with people. I don't enter that with any, just anyone who wants it. I enter it with people who I think are at a skill level and with a straight, straight enough forward case that um, I, I estimate they can handle it. And no matter how sophisticated those persons are, how conscientious they are, uh, when they send it to me for review, I always, I've never had a case where I didn't find a number of things, even if it was just helping them clarify issues for an officer. Um, but um, they always need help with something. I have yet to have a case where I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Yep, no, no further review required. Go ahead and send it. Yeah. I will say there's also the myth that goes the other way, which is um, the benefit of hiring a lawyer is you have someone who's your lawyer to help you lie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm telling you this as my lawyer. I have a company that I don't work for that's going to give me a job offer and I'll never work for them. Here's what, tell me what I need to do. You're my lawyer. And, and now you don't have a lawyer either. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's not how uh, hiring a lawyer works. So that's the. No, it does not. No, um, yeah. I'll do some of mine. The first is one that I don't know if you come across this also, but it's that volunteering isn't work. Yes. So, yes. So many people get themselves into trouble. Yeah. Um, Oh, it's a huge source of where people have uh, big misconceptions. Um, we already touched on this one, that if your kid is born in Canada, it doesn't mean that your h &C, uh, application is going to be guaranteed. Um, another one is, well, if I submit a weak application, it's fine because I can just challenge it in court. Yeah. <laughs> people who say, look, I'll do a weak initial application, but on the appeal, um, which people conflate the appeal and judicial review, that's when I'll be able to present my strong arguments. And a judicial review, you can't introduce new evidence. So it always is like interesting when you meet someone who says, well, look, I'll do the temporary resident visa application on my own, but if it's refused, then I'll come to you. Oh, yes. Like, well, then you aren't possibly, I mean, unless you're gonna file a really strong application, you're not leaving your uh, judicial review lawyer with uh, a lot to work with. No. It's much better to go in strong at the outset. Yeah, I just want to go back to the first one you mentioned, the volunteering. Yeah. Uh, you know, the public is so confused about this. Uh, it, they, they get themselves into trouble, usually with the best of intentions. You know, they think, oh, I'm you know, I'm a student or I'm a visitor and I'm doing something good in Canada. I'm volunteering my time. There are some cases where it's pretty obvious that, you know, they're working and I have to think most people should be able to figure that out. I mean, you want to volunteer in a secretarial position <laughs> and then maybe after you uh, get your work permit to uh, get a lump sum payment. No, that won't work. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but there are others who do something far more innocent. And as, as a lawyer, sometimes I'm left trying to figure out, is this work or is it truly volunteer? Are they entering the labor market? Uh, so if I'm having a hard time figuring it out sometimes, uh, so are so is the public. And they stand, they're at risk of being caught, arrested, and deported. Yeah. Now, 
I have a scenario for you since we no. both listened to podcasts and we were talking about Patreon before we uh, started recording. How's this for a myth? So the IRCC website says you don't need a work permit if you are engaged in long distance by telephone or internet work done by a temporary resident whose employer is outside Canada and who is remunerated from outside Canada. If you have a YouTube channel or a podcast with a Patreon, do you need a work permit to record those videos or podcasts when you're in Canada? My position is no. I have had um, cases like that. We reveal everything and it has not been an issue to date. Um, however, you know, why was it not an issue? Was uh, the officer paying attention to our very transparent uh, um, submissions? Uh, but I think if if the you know Patreon or the money source is outside Canada, um, there's really no element in Canada. Um, I think where that gets the water gets muddied is okay. What if there's a listener in Canada that's being broadcast in Canada, and the listener in Canada sends their contribution to the U.S. entity? Well, there you go. So now you're in reps. So I have had the same where we've disclosed it and officers were completely fine with it or didn't at least raise it as an issue. IMREPs, when I asked them about this, raised that exact scenario, which is you need a work permit because there might be a Canadian who views it and that impacts the monetary calculation of the YouTube ad or uh, a Canadian might donate to the Patreon. Mm. Work permits required. Anyway, that was a, I'm not... Uh, yeah. you know, I'm not sure that that's a consistently held opinion that I got from NREPs, but uh, it just is one of those things that might be a myth one day, but you can run. Yeah, I think they're, I can see the reasoning, but I think they're really stretching to sort of bring <laughs> that home to the Canadian labor market. Oh, I, yeah. Like it's a really uh, viewing there being a finite number of YouTube channels is a very zero sum uh, view of the internet. So then the converse of the, you know, the, the weak application with the judicial review, the converse of that is I've seen at CBSA where officers have said, look, I'm gonna refuse a deferral of removal, but uh, you can challenge it in court. And really it's gonna be the court that will be the final decision maker. And I've sat there listening to it going, no, that's not how it works. This is what I have to explain to clients. Like all the court will do is look at whether your decision is reasonable, unless are you willing to put that in writing that you view your decision as just a preliminary thing for the court, which of course <laughs> don't. One other one that I had written down and which has been a huge topic lately is the myth, if it still is a myth, that IRCC processes applications in the order that they're received. Yes. <laughs> all right yes yeah i can tackle that so pre-pandemic generally yes um with the pandemic i don't i don't think people know to what extent processing essentially stopped and for how long federally it it was it just froze in place and then there was there's been a big mess to clean up um okay um, the pandemic reasonably uh, didn't see coming. Uh, so, uh, but now as they're trying to organize and, and get rid of the backlog, 
I swear they're just like going to the pile and picking the one off the top of it that most recently arrived. And the one that arrived 12 months ago that's at the bottom of the pile, well, it'll it, we'll get to it in time. Um, but uh, I think there's lots of conversation on our listserv, uh, the immigration lawyers listserv, where you know people were waiting for an acknowledgement of receipt for one application that was submitted, you know, say nine months earlier, but there was an acknowledgement of receipt for one that was submitted one month earlier and decisions all over the place. I'm, I mean, I'm optimistic. That's just pain of, you know, getting back on the right processing footing. How long will it be in place? I, you know, we can only speculate. I would really like to see that sorted by the end of, of this year, but maybe I'm dreaming. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's any risk of, I hope this doesn't panic anyone, but a risk of a termination of backlogged applications a la 2004 or 2014 when they terminated all skilled worker applications received before a certain date? I was sort of wondering if that might not happen with all the uh, TRV, the visa, visitor visa applications that went in before during the pandemic and still aren't resolved out of Delhi, for example. Uh, so I'm, I'm still holding my breath on that one because, uh, you know, they need to be updated, but people are just starting to get their biometrics done so that they can move forward now. If we update them now, there's the constant issue that we can send all of the updating documents in that we want. <laughs> and what is the likelihood that they're going to be connected to the application? I don't even, oh, I, I wouldn't take that bet. No, I have no idea. And I have no idea what they're, uh, what they're, because they keep introducing new programs. So either they need to massively increase immigration or really slow down process or something's got to happen to address these applications that will, because if they're not going to, if like there's, I really only see like one of three other Processing times increased dramatically. Immigration numbers increased dramatically. Or they have to find a way to get rid of uh, a certain number of applications. Like, I'm not sure what else it could be. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that that will happen. Uh, because what we were facing before um, when uh, one of our former immigration ministers uh, sent everybody's federal skilled worker applications back to them. Um, it's like a know, billion people. <laughs> the, the backlog at that time, or I should say the inventory, <laughs> the inventory at that time was, um, was, was spectacular. Uh, the years and years of processing um, behind them, I mean, sometimes five, seven, nine more years. Now the the inventory is, represents what two years. Uh, so for that reason, I'm reasonably optimistic that they are going to get through it and carry on. That is pure optimistic speculation on my part, though. <laughs> um, and then the Larley Rosenberg on Slack myths that you can immigrate the same way your auntie did in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> this one you had raised, that you can bring family here beyond spouses, children, and parents. This will be kind of touched on, that there is a queue 
for all immigrants, whereas we know there's lots and lots of like little lines that go at different speeds. Um, and then the one that is that a few people raised that Americans buying a house in Canada gives them citizenship. Oh. Yes, yeah, so, so many U.S. American retirees have been terribly disappointed. I'm sure you get lots of these calls too, where they where they say, "Look, I'm retired now. I've had a you know perhaps even a good career. I have a nest egg. I would like to spend the rest of my years in Canada, buy a house, spend my money there." And my response is, "Part time, you can as a visitor. <laughs> Generally, I mean, there's the rare exception." But yeah, for the most part, um, they they are very surprised to learn that uh, there's, yeah, they just can't come on in and they're going to have to make a different plan, seasonal resident, perhaps. Yeah. It, uh, and those are the Larley Rosenberg myths. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot out there, but I think, you know, um, you know, I do expect now that fairly savvy uh, applicants, clients will, you know, take a look around and take a look at the government website and see what they see there. So uh, usually they, they get discouraged rather quickly as they try to find information, but give it a bit of a go. Um, but the, you know, the idea that one can go and find their answers on the internet when they don't have experience in this area or, you know, an understanding of the law is, is a terrible hazard. So yes, no, no internet law degree uh, to, to do one's own application. And those, those you know, in one way, those um, information boards that people will post their questions to and people try to help each other, you know, sometimes there's good information on there that people accurately share. A lot of the time they are, it seems to me that they're sincerely trying to share their information, but they don't understand what it is that they're really sharing. And so they're giving out false information and people are reading this thinking, oh, somebody just wrote on the internet, they answered my question, they just went through it themselves. Okay, got the answer, I'm good to go. And get your advice from a professional. It, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, or the IRCC Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh yeah, a, a shout out to IRCC's social media. I mean, they're, they, the Twitter account, I love what they're doing through it. I mean, I'm at I mean, least pretty yeah. darn happy. You know, it was really interesting that when it came to the TRPR pathway, the application guide said that uh, even if you had a lawyer, all forms needed to be signed. The mm -hmm. Twitter account was telling people, no, no, just the user rep. Basically, you can ignore the guide. And the Twitter account was right. Yeah. So sources of law in order is the IRCC Twitter account, the website, the regs, the app. <laughs> Like, yeah, no, they, they do a, a pretty good uh, job, um, although, and I do feel rather sorry for them because I'm sure they have typed in, please clear your cash so often that they now dream about it, nightmarish yeah. dreams. Um, oh, so what another, if your work permit is expiring, it is, you will have no issues logging in the day of expiry to submit an extension application. Yeah. 
Uh, the, yeah, I cannot wait until the new IT platform is available because, you know, there are some, t- I've heard from IRCC a few times, look, if, you know, you know that the platform is unstable, don't leave things to the last day. And that in some cases is a fair statement, um, you know, organize thine self and get on with it. But sometimes there is a good, or at least a human reason for not doing it until the 11th hour. And then, so people get on, they're legally allowed to, and then they can't because the platform's down. And when it gets back up, they're out of status and a whole lot of problems uh, flow from that. And I've never, you know, I, I do wish that there were, there would be a grace period where it's known the platform was down. Yeah, it, um, I don't know. I have GC keys for parks, firearms, fishing. No one's <laughs> logging it. I don't know what it is about the IRCC uh, website that it constantly backs. Yeah. Like it's not a GC key thing. Um, what's your favorite application portal? I've come to really like the OIMP, the Ontario Immigrant Nominee Program. Like if I were to design, I think that if they resolve this issue with lawyers uh, being able to like, I don't know, upload documents or sign into their client's portal, maybe not submit the final application, but like the new portals are for the most part, good. I don't know if you've used the like new general catch-all portal where it's like every possible application form, just scroll through the list. And so when I've done it with clients, it's like we're doing a self-employed class application. It's relationship history form. You can skip this. Quebec skilled worker, you can skip this. And it's like, I actually don't know, like they will get a self-wrapped applicant who thinks that they have to do every form for every possible application. Like I'm sure of it because when you look at the, so what it is, is it's like, it's, it looks like the port, like the TRPR pathway portal or even the third party portal, I guess, or work permit form, but literally a field to upload every possible form that IRCC has and they will get an application. I have no doubt with every form and they will look at it and go, we have no idea what this person's applying for like yeah that that's actually a really good point i mean an experienced um effective immigration lawyer is going to know what to cut out no you've proven this point you've proven it well with weighty evidence you don't need to continue to prove it 72 more times uh and but when people are by themselves they're anxious and they, they i think and i see it in new lawyers as well sometimes they're anxious so they think uh i think i proved the point but here's a whole bunch of other stuff and the officer can figure it out. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's not what we want done. I'm sure the officers don't appreciate that. I mean, there was the one uh, somewhat amusing uh, uh, account on the listserv the other day where somebody's client who was being forced to do something by themselves, um, IRCC said only you can use this particular portal, uh, was asked for a copy of their passport. And so they had, what was it, two or three? And they uploaded <laughs> separate uh, JPEGs or whatever for each page. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's what's going to happen when you have scared people scrambling to do it themselves. Yeah. Like, uh, we'll see how it all resolves itself. Anyway, we're coming up on uh, 
our normal, the average length of the pod, and more importantly, lunch. So it's that. <laughs> yes. This has been fun. It was fun. Thank I'm you for having me on. I'll have to some more uh, once we all, if we can all get together. I don't know if there'll be a fall reception where lawyers all get together, not on Zoom, yeah. preferably, but uh, we shall see. Yeah, hopefully there is. We can find a patio somewhere. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Talk soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.